This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, and it's time to start our next session this morning. We are in a class called Remnant Identity. We studied who the remnant were in our last session, looking through if you missed that session, we looked through the Old Testament, discovering who the remnant were, and uh, the concept of the remnant is a concept of a DNA faithfulness, a, pro a posterity that's faithful to God. Throughout the Old Testament, we looked at the fact that God pardons, preserves his remnant. He's always had a remnant that he's preserved. He pardons his remnant. He gathered his remnant. He purifies his remnant. We looked at Revelation chapter 12 as well. Last session was a Bible study where we looked at our Bibles. This session will be, uh, uh, we'll use graphics and go to the screen. Then this afternoon we talk about the shaking of Adventism and how to be sure that you're not shaken out. We will go back to the Bible and then our last presentation back to graphics. That gives us some variety in our presentation. So let's pray. You can, we'll keep the lights on because there'll be many Bible texts and references you want to write down. Remember, you do have in the back of your uh, booklet. You have some excellent pages for notes for the seminar if you need to use them. Let's pray. Father, as we approach one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible, we pray that you would help us to have a deeper understanding of that chapter, and particularly as we think about the society that we live in, in the United States and many of us Western Europe, where Postmodernism and secularism has gripped the mind. Help us to see once again, afresh and anew, just how the message of the three angels speaks to this contemporary society and speaks to all humanity. So I pray that you would bless in a very special, special way our presentation. May your spirit be here. May we, we sense that. Now guide us in Christ's name. Amen. Four chapters in the book of Revelation that talk about a end-time people. We have Revelation chapter 3 that describes the Laodicean condition of God's people. We have Revelation chapter 10 that describes the historic rise of God's people as the result of studying the book of Daniel, the little book in the angel's hand that was sealed, then opened, and the disappointment, you know that chapter. Revelation chapter 12 that describes the characteristics of the remnant. And then Revelation chapter 14, hope's grace-filled end-time message. You know, in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, the nation of Israel found their identity in this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Israelites called this the great Shema. They taught it to their children. This passage, more than any other, identified Israel. When Hebrew mothers were rocking their babies to sleep at night, from the time that that child was, oh, five, three months old, five months old, the mother would rock the baby and sing to the, to the baby, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Throughout the centuries of their exile, when the Israelites were exiled and they were no longer in Jerusalem, but they were in Babylon, the chanting of the Shema reminded the Jews of the spiritual vision and the path that united them as a people. They, this Shema gave them the sense of vision that, that God is still our God. Jewish mothers continually taught their young children to chant the Shema before going to sleep. So when the children were old enough to speak, some of their first words would be, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. And Israel mothers and Jewish mothers would be rocking their babies. And as they rocked their babies, the baby, as soon as it could speak, would begin chanting back to its mother those very words. Now, during the Holocaust in the 19, late 1930s, 39 to 45, some Jewish parents in Europe placed their children in Christian orphanages to save their lives. 
the Holocaust was occurring, the German Nazi forces were taking Jews by the tens of thousands and putting them in prison camps like Ravensbrück and Dachau, and these Jewish parents were concerned about their children. So they put them in the orphanages, Christian orphanages. After the war was over, many of the leading rabbis visited these Christian orphanages because they wanted to secure Jewish children. See, the parents of these children had died. But here's the problem. If you were a Jewish-Polish child, you would have a Polish name, not a Jewish name necessarily. The same was true with German Jews. The same was true with Swiss Jews. Many times you didn't have Jewish names. So the rabbis would go to these Catholic orphanages and they would say, we want our Jewish children. And the priests would say, there are no Jewish children here. Give us their lineage. Tell us who their parents were. Tell us. And because, of course, the records were destroyed, the rabbis couldn't do it. And so they said, no, we're not going to give you any of these children. One day, two of the leading rabbis came to a major Catholic orphanage and said, we'd like to have the Jewish children. And the chief priest said, nothing doing. There are no Jewish kids here. And the rabbi said, could I please come back in the evening? During one visit, a leading rabbi asked the priest in charge of the orphanage to allow him to return in the evening when the children were going to sleep. The priest didn't understand why. He said, sure, come back in the evening. As he came into the orphanage, he just began to chant the Hebrew words of the Shema. The Lord our God is one. A child over here sat up in bed crying. Mama, mama. He said, that's one of mine. Mama, mama. They'd begin to chant the Shema back to the rabbi. He identified every one of the Jewish children that way, in that orphanage. Because those children, from their earliest ages, had a sense of who they were as Jews. They had a sense of identity as Jews. They knew this Shema, the Lord our God is one Lord. And they would repeat the words of the Shema and identified them in that time of captivity. Now for Seventh-day Adventists, the three angels' messages in Revelation chapter 14, they're our Shema. They are our rallying point. They define who we are as a people. They describe our mission to the world. That's who we are. Revelation 14 describes Seventh-day Adventists. So we're going to spend some time looking at that message. We find our unique prophetic identity outlined in Revelation 14, verse 6 to 12. And it's here that we find our passion to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. It's here we understand the very foundation of who we are and why we're here. So let's read together Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7 from the screen. Let's read it. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the waters. Now let's take a look at that message. Now Ellen White puts it this way. She says, in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of most solemn import, the proclamation of the first second and third angels' messages. Read the next sentence with me, please. There is no other work of so great importance. Next one. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Evangelism, page 119. Is the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' message, is that 19th century mentality that the church has now grown out of that has little or no relevance to the church today? Is it? Or, is, or are the three angels' messages on the cutting edge of what the world needs. And what I want to show you in this presentation is why the message of the three angels is specifically designed by God for this generation. Why it is the most relevant, the most significant message in the history of humanity. 
and why God knew in advance the needs of this generation and how he crafted a message to reach this generation. The message of the three angels is one specifically given by God for this generation. Now let's look at the message itself. We'll look at it phrase by phrase, and we'll see how that relates to contemporary society. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Now in this phrase, you notice some significant things. It says to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Here's what you notice. First, the message is urgent. I saw another angel fly in the middle of heaven. So it's urgent. Second, the message is eternal. It says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. It's eternal. Third, it's universal. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So here you have an urgent message, you have an eternal message, and you have a universal message. You have a, a message that is relevant for now. You have a message that relates, if it's eternal, it relates to the past, the present, and the future. If it's universal, it goes to every nation. Now notice it says the everlasting or the eternal gospel. Now this phrase, everlasting gospel, speaks of the past, the present, and the future. How does the gospel speak to the past? Before the human race was ever created, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit met in an eternal council meeting in heaven. And they determined that indeed, if necessary, Christ would come to this world. The plan of salvation was not an afterthought. In fact, you remember in Revelation 13, it says that Jesus was the Lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. So the gospel speaks of a love in the heart of God for humanity that is unbroken. Desire of Ages, page 22 says, the plan of our redemption was not an afterthought, a plan formulated after the fall of Adam. It was a revelation of the mystery which had been kept in silence through times eternal, Romans 6, verse 25. It was an unfolding of the principles that from eternal ages have been the foundation of God's throne. This everlasting gospel is a message of a God who took the risk in creating human beings that they would fall, but who loved so much that he would take the responsibility for their fall when they fell. So the everlasting gospel that goes to all the world is so much different than Hinduism. It is so much different than, than Islam. In Hinduism, if you've ever traveled to, to India, for example, you will see the fruit offerings to God. So the Hindus must make offerings themselves to God. Christianity, God made an offering for us. So, so here in Christianity, we find an unfolding of the principles from eternal age that have been the foundation of God's throne. A love that is so great, a love that's so strong, a love that is so unbroken that God would sacrifice himself for us to redeem us or save us. And this was not some afterthought. It was very part of the character of God. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, to a generation starved for genuine, authentic love, the three angels' message speaks of a God of unconditional love who go to any length to redeem us because he wants us with him forever. We live in a generation that is looking for love. People that are saying, I want to find love, they try to find it in so many different ways, in relationships at times that are so shallow that go through the hands like, grains of sand or like a shadow that dances away but that love that is authentic that love that is genuine is the unconditional love of God who loves me not because of what I do or don't do but he loves me because he created me in his image and I'm unique in all the universe you know somebody says to me but wait a minute how can I be special to God how, how can I have any worth to God. I mean, if I'm lost, God won't even know it. 
I mean, if I lost, I'm lost, there's six billion other people, and uh, he'll just forget about me. How many of you are parents? Anybody parents here? How many of you have more than one child? How many have more than two? How many have more than five? How many have a dozen or more? <laughs> okay, <laughs> cheaper by the dozen, no. Okay, suppose you, have, suppose you have five children, and one of those children is hit by a car. They're playing soccer. They kick the ball. It rolls out into the street, and they're running after it. They don't see a car. You just come out on the front porch. You hear the screeching of the brakes. You see that little body hit, and that child dies. So your pastor comes to me and says, Pastor Mark, let's go over and counsel this husband and wife whose child died and maybe you can give them some good counsel. I said, sure, let's go. So I get this brilliant idea. So we, I come into the house, and we sit down, and you're weeping, your husband's weeping, and I say, I have a question. How many children do you have? Well, five, but that one is done. So you have four. Let's sing the doxology, because many people couldn't even have children. And let's sing and praise God that you have four. And I got another idea, too. Let's praise God for another reason you have four, because now when you make the homemade apple pie, everybody's going to get a little bit more. And now when you have to buy shoes, you only have to buy four pair, you don't have to buy five pair. I think you should be incredibly thankful. When you've got to pay Christian education, it's pretty expensive. You don't have to pay that $15,000 a year, whatever it is now, or $20,000 a year, whatever it is. It depends what level you're on. I understand that. Okay, you don't have to do all that anymore. Well, I mean, you should be so thankful. What do mothers do with crazy American preachers who talk like that? They throw them out the house, right? They throw them out the house. Why? Because what would that mother say? I may have four, but there's a place in my heart for Johnny. And the other four don't make up for that. I may have four, but there's a place in a mother's heart, a place in a father's heart for that one. Nobody smiles like Johnny. Nobody hugs me like Johnny. Nobody kissed me on the cheek like Johnny. Will four make up for the one that died? No. The God that put it in a mother's heart to love five can love five billion, or can love six billion, you see. What is the message of the three angels? It starts with the everlasting gospel, a message of unconditional love that speaks about the foundational principles of eternity, that speaks about a God who wants you in heaven more than you ever want to be in heaven. It speaks about a grace. What is the gospel? It is the doing and dying of Christ. It speaks about his perfect life that atones for my imperfect life. What is the gospel? It speaks about a Christ that pardons my past, empowers my present, and provides hope for my future. What is the gospel? What is this everlasting gospel? It's this incredible, it's this incredible good news. You see, in Christ, we're delivered from sin's penalty and power, and one day soon we'll be delivered from sin's presence. Now, this is the hope, grace-filled message of the Bible's last book, the book of Revelation. So, does the world need today this assurance of forgiveness? Does that, are people today riddled with guilt? Today, in our society, is it true that prescription drugs for depression are going off the charts? Why is it that the message of the gospel is so relevant? Because it meets the need of the human heart the need for acceptance, the need for forgiveness, the need for life transformational power. So what does the Bible say? I saw a what? Another angel, a message flying. It's urgent in the midst of heaven, having the what? Everlasting what? The gospel. Is the gospel good news? Is it good news? Is it good news that we can be forgiven? Is it good news that our condemnation can be gone? Is it good news that the guilt of the past is go over? Is it good news that the living Christ can change us and make us over again? Is that the gospel? Is that a message that the world needs? This is not some oppressive legalism. It is the essence of what our world needs. It's the hope-filled, grace-filled message of the Bible's last book. 
the eternal gospel speaks not only of the past and present, it's the basis of a future hope. It speaks of living eternally with the one whose heart is aching to be with us forever. So what a, John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not what? Perish, but have what? Everlasting life. So in a world where we see Syrian refugees fleeing into Europe with little hope, desperate, in a world where we see life regarded with astonishing indifference, in a world that we see individuals filled with famine, homes racked by floods, we as Seventh-day Adventists can say there is a better world that's coming through Jesus and because of Jesus we can have what? Eternal life. This is the message of Revelation chapter 14. Now what does it say? I saw, quote it with me please, I saw what? Another angel doing what? Flying in the midst of what? Heaven having the what? Everlasting gospel. To go where? To every what? Nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So here's a message that's to go to the whole world. Here's a mission so, mission so grand, so large, so great, so comprehensive, that it's all-consuming. This commission demands our best efforts and requires our total commitment. It leads us from a preoccupation with our own self-interest to a passion for Christ's service. If young people want anything today, they want to be challenged with something that's bigger and larger than themselves. They do not want to be narrowed down to getting up in the morning and wolfing down their breakfast and going to work and sitting before some computer screen all day and then coming home and eating supper and watching sports on TV. Isn't life worth more than that? Is that the reason for your existence? Is that why you live? Simply to get up in the morning and work all day as a nurse, as a physician, as a teacher, as an engineer, and then simply come home and then go to bed at night and do the same thing again and again and again? What does the three angels' message do? It takes us out of ourselves. It shows us a big, huge world for Christ. It calls us to give our lives for something that counts, and that is to share his love and grace and get men and women ready for all eternity. It leads us from the smallness of our lives to the bigness of God's plan. William Carey was a shoe cobbler in London, England. And uh, he would put heels on shoes and soles on shoes, and he had a big map of the world in his shoe cobbling shop. And he said this, I cobble shoes to pay expenses, but soul winning is my business. You may be a computer expert, but as you go there and sit before that computer screen, you're praying for that man that sat next, who sits next to you on the computer screen that you can share Jesus with him. And someday he's going to come in and he's going to say, I'm troubled today because I have this problem with my kid, or I got this problem with my wife who's just been diagnosed with cancer. And as you do that, you'll share Jesus' love and grace and support and prayer with that individual. You may be a university student in a secular university. You may go to the University of Michigan a universe, or, or here in Louisville, and you're praying for those students, and you're watching for opportunities. You may be a mechanic, and you've got some cursing, swearing mechanics around you, but you're praying that God will give you an opportunity. Because the three angels' message demands our best efforts. It requires our total commitment. It leads us from the preoccupation with self-interest to a passion for Christ's service. In his book, The Quest for More, Paul David Tripp put it this way, human beings were created to be part of something bigger than their own lives. Sin causes us to shrink our lives down to the size of our lives. The grace of Christ is given to rescue us from the claustrophobic confines of our own self, little self-focused kingdom and frees us to live for the eternal purposes and satisfying delights of the kingdom of God. We live in a culture that has institutionalized self-focus and personal entitlement. If you look around, it's very clear that we need to be rescued from ourselves. Things like debt, addiction, obesity, divorce. 
are the fruits of a culture of self-focus, where we look for meaning where meaning cannot be found. There is freedom to be found in living for something bigger than yourself. Ultimately, it means living for the glory of God and the success of his agenda for the world he has made. The three angels' message is relevant for young people today because it calls us to Christ's agenda, not our own agenda. It calls us to something that's big and grand and large. Here is something worth giving your life to, sharing the good news of Christ. There is nothing more inspiring, more fulfilling, more rewarding than being part of a divine movement providentially raised up by God to accomplish a task far bigger, far larger than any one human being could ever accomplish on their own. What is the appeal of the three angels' message to a youth generation today? It is the appeal to look at a world that doesn't know Christ. It's the appeal to something large, something great, something grand. It's the appeal to fulfill the destiny that you were made for, to fulfill the purpose that you exist for. I'm simply not a cow, a mosquito, or a horse. You know, animals largely think of themselves, they don't think of service very much. But you and I have been given, we create in the image of God, with higher purposes and more noble dreams. And the three angels' message calls us to that. Revelation, uh, Matthew 24, 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. We're called to usher in the second coming of Christ by being faithful witnesses to Jesus and sharing his love and grace with the world. We're called as an end-time prophetic people. Seventh-day Adventists are not merely one of a variety of religious denominations that have come upon the scene of religious history. We are rather part of a divine movement raised up by God to accomplish something grand and great in his kingdom. Now notice what the scripture says. Revelation 14 verse 6 says, I saw a what? Another angel flying, that's urgent, in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, something eternal, the good news of Christ's forgiveness, grace, love, and power. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach those that dwell on the earth, something big. Then it then this message in verse 7 begins to look at some very interesting aspects of God's end time message. We want to look at those and see how they relate to this generation. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, we're going to look at the expression fear God. That word fear is a word respect God. The Greek New Testament word for fear in Revelation 14, 7 is, is phoebo. It is used here not in the sense of being afraid of God, but in the sense of reverence, awe, and respect. Now, something that I did not know, I, I, I knew, of course, it meant reverence, awe, and respect, but until I looked at the derivation of the word, I saw something else in it that I hadn't seen before. And that is it conveys the thought of absolute loyalty to God and full surrender to his will. This very word means reverence in the sense of a subject to a king. So the, 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 the subject of the society is giving reverence to the king as a loyal, obedient subject. It's awe and respect that leads to absolute loyalty and full surrender to his will. So here is an attitude of mind that takes God seriously. Here is a God-centered rather than a self-centered life. The generation that we are living in can spot a counterfeit a hundred miles away. If there is anything that secular postmodern youth long for, it's authenticity. It's authenticity. We want something real. We don't want something, no facade not something that is make-believe. We want the real, the genuine, the authentic. The word fear God in Revelation 14 verse 7 is a call to much more than respect God. It's a call to live a God-centered life. It is an attitude of mind that takes God seriously. It is God-centered rather than self-centered. I teach a course at a course, it's actually a seminar 
at a secular university in, a, in, in spite of international travel, which I do in working for the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and we'll tell you a little bit about this later. My wife and I now are working with a group of, a small group of Adventists to plant a church in a new community, building a church, a training center, and at the end of the meeting, I'll tell you a little bit about that. But anyway, one day I was holding in that community a seminar on Bible lands and archaeology, and we were trying to plant a new church in this community. We had about 100 people coming to it. And one day, a man walked in, and he sat next to me, and he said, I know who you are, but you don't know who I am. Let me tell you who you are, and then let me tell you who I am. And eventually, I discovered that he was the president of the provost of the local university. They have 13,000 students. And the Northern Virginia Community College actually has 79,000 students, but his college has 13,000. And he said, I'm reaching out to community leaders, and I'm wondering if you'd help me. I'd like you to help me with my students. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, how much do you charge? And I said, well, you couldn't afford me. No. <laughs> no, I didn't tell him that. <laughs> I said, you're going to like the price because I don't charge anything. Tell me what you want me to do. He said, I want you to motivate my students to get better grades. So I teach a seminar each semester on how to improve your grades. And um, we teach them diet and exercise. We teach them studying 45 minutes, go out and exercise, and we study about the human mind and so forth. So anyway, when I go in and teach those secular students, I am amazed. Because as I'm teaching them diet and exercise, as I come to the end of the course, I just share my own experience. And I simply say, you know what? I found as a student that after I studied, when I prayed that God would help me to retain that information, and I tell them about how to take a walk and, re and review the information in your mind and keep repeating it over and going over the toughest stuff, but as you walk to pray, I've had students, they will come up to you and they'll say, you know, I'm not too religious of this at all, but they appreciate the fact that you are authentic with them. Amen. Authentic with them. The three angels' message calls us from all sham and all pretense. A make-believe Christianity is not going to reach the world. It's just not. Sham is not going to reach the world. The world has a lot of hypocrisy. If, if you have a hypocrisy, hypocritical Christian experience, if you say one thing and live another way, if, you, if, you, if your life doesn't match, if your words don't match your life, the world turns away from it. But if you are authentic, so what, what is this expression, fear God? It's not simply reverence. It's take God seriously. It's live a God-centered life. Remember, it's living a life that is not for self. Uh, it is a call that's the opposite of what Satan was doing in Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. Satan says, I'll ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the Most High. So here you have, he had eye problems. That's the problem with Satan. He had eye problems. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. So he had a throne, wasn't consent with it, content with his position. I'll sit upon the mount of the congregation. So he lived a self-centered life. The three angels' message is a call for authenticity and not to live self-centered lives. When secular values have made self the center, heaven's appeal is to turn from the tyranny of self-centeredness and the bondage of self-inflated importance to place God at the center of our lives. And this is what the world longs for. They long for people that are willing to serve, people that are willing to bless, Recently, I was at the United Nations. And I will not tell you a great deal of the story, but I met with the ambassador of a secular country, an atheistic country, that as far as we know, there are no Adventist churches in it. No, there are not. There are not any Adventist churches. And as I sat with that ambassador, representing the Adventist church, I said to him, you may wonder how as a religious man, as a man of faith, I can work with you, who you have told me you're an atheist and you have no faith and your government is totally atheistic. You might wonder that. And there's only one reason. Because we believe that God has created every human being in his image. And we come with no strings attached to serve your people and to bless your people. At the end of that meeting, 
An atheist ambassador looked me in the eye and said, I want to work with my government to give you an invitation to come to our country. Why? Because they see the world is looking for a revelation of unselfish love and people that are ready to serve. That's what fearing God is all about. It's shifting the emphasis from ourself to God. It's living not a self-centered life, but a God-centered life. It's authentic Christian experience. This is the three angels' message. Notice Matthew 6, verse 33. Let's read it together. Seek you first the what? Kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. This is the fearing God, the reverence of God, the loyalty to God. Set your mind, Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your mind where? On things what? Above, not on things on, on earth. Now, Fear God and give glory. Don't miss this one. Fear God speaks of our, of our attitudes. Giving glory speaks of our actions. Fear God has to do with what we think. Giving glory to God has to do with what we do. Fearing God has to do with the inner commitment in our heart. Giving glory to God has to do with a lifestyle that honors God. So in the expression, fear God and give glory to him, one is speaking about attitudes, the other about actions. One is speaking about thought processes, the other is speaking about what we do. One is speaking about inner commitment, the other is speaking about a lifestyle that honors God. So it says, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you what? Do, do all to the what? Glory of God. Seventh-day Adventists have a message for the world. It is a message of the eternal gospel, of the good news of forgiveness and freedom from guilt. It is the message of the empowering of Christ. It is a universal message to go to all the world. It is a message, indeed, of fearing God, of a God-centered life. It's a message of giving glory to God in what we eat, drink, our entire lifestyle. I mean, think about the Adventist health message. Hasn't it been catapulted into the forefront? Seventh-day Adventists who give glory. We don't have to apologize for being vegetarians anymore, right? The world's running to catch up with us, reducing heart disease, reducing the risk of cancer. I mean, processed meats just came out recently on their causal linkage with cancer. And Seventh-day Adventists, the Blue Zones, you know, you look at the National Geographic, the book on the Blue Zones, and uh, Loma Linda in the spotlight. See, giving glory to God in everything you do, not with abusing your body through smoking, drinking, drugs, alcohol, etc. Et so what is this three angels message all about? It is a comprehensive message to prepare a people for the coming of Christ. It gives us a sense of freedom from condemnation. It gives us a sense of power in our lives. It gives us a sense of purpose, of bigness, uh, a message to go to the world. It gives us a sense of worshiping God, not ourselves. It gives us a sense of living lives to the fullest, the most abundant possible lives, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Here's, now, it says, fear God, give glory, for the hour of his judgment is come. How can judgment possibly be good news? I mean, I don't like to think too much about going before the judge. I don't like to think about that very much at all. I went before one judge in my life. That was enough. I will not tell you the story. <laughs> you don't need to know about that. I did go before a judge. I was almost ready to tell you. All right, here we go. It was nothing serious. It was Halloween night, and I did some stupid prank by throwing an egg out of a car window and hitting somebody in the face. The girl I was with was trying to throw, it wasn't my wife now, the girl I was with trying to throw eggs out the window, and she was a bad shot, but I was an athlete. I knew it was a good shot, so I hit the guy right in the face, and the police didn't like it too much. So anyway, but that was a good, I was an athlete in the city, so that helped me a lot. Okay, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment, what? has come. So judgment usually isn't good news. How can judgment be good news? The universe will finally see that God is merciful and just. He's loving and righteous. The judgment reveals God's character of self-sacrificing love to Satan's character of selfish ambition. See, what's this judgment all about? Revelation 14, verse 7 is a divine commentary on Daniel 7, verse 13, 14, 26, and 27. Before a waiting world and a watching universe, God reveals in heaven's eternal judgment that he's done everything, absolutely everything, 
possible to save all humanity. Judgment is passed in favor of the saints. Notice what the text says, the hour of whose judgment has come. The hour of my judgment? The hour of whose judgment? God's judgment. Here's what happens in the judgment. God reveals before the whole universe that there is nothing that he could have done more to save you. The records that come up in judgment are a revelation of God's actions in, every, in, in attempts to save us and our choices in response to those actions. So before the whole universe, God is on trial. Is God fair and is God just in the way he's administered the universe? And the judgment reveals that God is fair and just. Now, how does judgment and the concept of judgment reveal to, how does that, um, how is that relevant to a postmodern generation? What is one of the cries of a postmodern generation? One of the cries of a postmodern generation is justice and fairness. Why is it fair for some people to have a child that's born dead? Why is it fair for Syrian refugees to come across the border by the millions and be starving and you eat a good meal today because of a geographical accident of where you were born? Why is it fair, for example, for a young African-American to be gunned down in a street because he's walking down the street? See, why is that fair? There's a lot that's unfair. Or why is it fair for a cop to be sitting in a car and be shot in the head? See, why are those things fair? Is it true that life is unfair? Is that true? Anybody that says to you that life is fair doesn't know very much about life, right? Because life is not what? Always fair. Why is it fair for a baby to be born of an AIDS-inflicted mother with AIDS, HIV positive? Did the baby do anything? Is that fair? It's not fair. What does the judgment say? To a generation that craves fairness, to a generation that wants justice, the judgment says, although life on earth was not fair, God is always fair. And God will take all the unfairness of life, all the injustice of life, and he will make it right through all eternity. Because in his kingdom, there is only justice. In his kingdom, there is only righteousness. And he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Life is unfair, but God is what? Fair. And he will reign forever and ever. So to a world that cries out for fairness, to a world that's in the middle of injustice, Seventh-day Adventists come with a message of justice and judgment. Fear God. Live God-centered lives. Give glory to Him and live the abundant life here. The hour of His judgment has come. Before the whole universe, Christ is revealing His fairness and His justice, and His kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. In the judgment, all wrongs will be made right. In the judgment, righteousness will triumph over evil. As James Russell Lowell, the American poet, put it so well, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God, keeping watch above his own. One day, all wrongs will be made right. One day, righteousness will triumph over evil. Now, the Revelation 14, 7 ends with an appeal to worship the one who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Who is the one that made heaven, earth, sea, and the springs of water? What do we call him? We call him Jesus? What else do we call him? We call him the creator, right? So here's a call to worship the creator. In an age of evolution, where people have lost a sense of self-worth, where many believe that we are no more than an advanced animal, that we are simply genes and chromosomes that came together, some blob of amoeba. Creation is a powerful concept. It leads us back to the one who made us and gives us security and rest and his love and care. Worship the creator. What does the Sabbath say to a postmodern culture? It says God created you and God made you and you have worth because he made you. So what is the Sabbath? It's not a sign of legalism. It's a sign of rest, not works. See, Sunday is the sign of legalism. Sabbath is a sign of righteousness by faith. How so, you say? 
when human beings change Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, that, is that God's work or man's work? That's man's work. And all man's work is what? Legalism. Because it's righteousness by works. But Sabbath is a symbol of righteousness by faith because Sabbath was created by God and Sabbath is God's work and not what? Man's work. So when we come to rest on Sabbath, we look back to the one that made us and we say, he loves me, he created me. Did God have to create you? Are you a genetic accident? Let me ask you, why are you not a fish swimming in the sea? Why aren't you a sweet potato that somebody's going to eat for lunch? <laughs> Did you choose in the eons of the past, you know, I don't think I, I, I want to be a human being. I, I think I'd rather be a sweet potato. That'd, that'd be kind of nice, you know. Why aren't you a mosquito? Did you choose to be born? You didn't, did you? In the divine drama of destiny, God brought you together. Genes and chromosomes fashioned you and shaped you, brought you onto the scene of this earth's history right now. You weren't born a thousand years ago. You weren't, you, you, you weren't born uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. But he brought you now as a generation of youth and adults to worship the Creator, to recognize the value. You know, when I, often I take walks, and often I walk, I say, thank you, God, for the joy of living. I don't know how many more years I'll live, but thank you for the joy of living. You gave me the gift of life, and I want to use every bit of that gift to serve and worship you. So creation is a powerful concept. It helps us to rest in the one that made us, to rest in his security, love, and care. John looked up into heaven and he said, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is God worthy of glory? Why is he worthy of honor and power? For you did what? Read it with me. You created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Now notice, he created all things, but they were created by his what? Will. How many things did God create? Are you one of the things he created? Or is your life an accident? So if he created you, you exist by whose will? You exist by God's will. Can you say that with me? I exist by the will of God. I exist by the will of God. Together. I exist by the will of God. Once again, I exist by the will of God. Don't you feel better than when you came in here? <laughs> the God of the universe has you in his mind. Praise God. This is the three angels' message. Every time you worship on Sabbath, you say, I exist by the will of God. God created me. God fashioned me. God shaped me. Creation speaks of our value in God's sight. It speaks of our worth to him. We are worth something to God. If we weren't worth something, he would not have created us. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he created us and he redeemed us. And creation is at the heart of all true worship. See, the heathen gods could not create in the Old Testament. So they, were, they made gods of wood and stone to them. But our God doesn't need a God of wood and stone because he indeed is the creator. The Sabbath speaks of a creator's care. It speaks of a redeemer's love. Every Sabbath as we rest, we rest in his love and care. So the Sabbath is designed for a generation that's going crazy, crazy over work, crazy to make money, crazy over lack of self-esteem and self-worth. But Sabbath speaks of a creator's care. It speaks of redeemer's love. It speaks of resting from guilt, resting from fear, resting from condemnation, resting from the toil of life. Revelation's last day message calls us from the frantic pace of 21st century living back to finding rest in our creator. Sabbath is an eternal symbol of our rest in him rather than an arbitrary legalist requirement. It reveals that true rest from righteousness by works is found in him. The Sabbath speaks of a God who has achieved so we can rest in his achievements. True Sabbath rest is the rest of grace in the loving arms of the one who created us, the one who redeemed us, and the one who's coming again for us. Sabbath is a symbol of rest not works, of grace not legalism, of assurance not condemnation, of depending upon him and not ourselves. Each Sabbath, we rejoice in his love and praise him for the salvation that can only be found in Christ. Now, let's pause for a moment 
before we summarize the second and third angel's message in the next five minutes. I'm an evangelist. I can go quick or short or long. First angel's message. Why is it relevant? First, because it's urgent message by God. Second, because it's an eternal message by God. Third, because it's a universal message by God. Three angels' message, why is it relevant? Because it talks about our past, our present, and our future. It answers the three great questions of life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? How does the three angels' message, questions, an three angels message answer those? Where did I come from? I was created by God. Why am I here to give him glory? Where am I going to eternity? Broken down, the three angels' message speaks about the gospel, forgiveness, grace, mercy, freedom from guilt. It speaks about a power to change your lives. Why is the three angels' message relevant to a youth generation? Because it stretches us beyond the smallness of our own lives and, and leads us to the bigness of God's plan. Why is the three angels' message relevant? It helps us to dream God's dreams, to vision God's visions. Why is the three angels' message relevant? It leads us to fear God, to give him respect, the respect that's due to his name. It leads us to give him our absolute total loyalty, our total commitment. Why is it relevant? It leads us to give him glory in our lives and to glorify him in what we eat and drink and everything we do to live the most abundant life. It leads us to understand that this world is not fair, but he is, and that one day his kingdom will reign and he'll set everything wrong, everything right that was wrong and he'll right every wrong. Why is it relevant? It leads us to the one that created us. It gives us a sense of self-worth. Why is it relevant? It leads us to rest in his love and care, and it frees us from tension and anxiety in Sabbath worship. And Sabbath reminds us of the eternal day that we'll worship with him in heaven forever. So it gives us hope. So it's relevant and filled with hope. Now, if you were the devil, now that's not good if you were the devil. I mean, what do you think the devil might do He'd try to do everything he could to distort that message. He has. What about the second angel's message? Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And what about the mark of the beast? These expressions speak in general terms. We could go into the specifics, but I want you to see the principle. They speak of self-centered arrogance and human pride rather than self-sacrificial love. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, arrogantly boasts, is not this great Babylon that I have built? What is Babylon? Babylon is a confused religious system that's based on the teachings of human beings and the falsehoods and deceits of Satan rather than the clear truth of God's word as articulated by the remnant. That's what Babylon is. Babylon represents the teachings of man and the confusion of those religious systems. Babylon represented in the Old Testament the proud achievements of man. It was a symbol of human works, not God's grace. Human traditions, not God's commands. Babylon was a symbol of religious pride and arrogance. God is leading a generation of youth and adults from the confusion of religious Babylon to the pure truth of his word in a final generation to give his final message to the world. The mark of the beast at its very heart is much more than simply the change of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, although it is that. And that will be the enforcement of the mark of the beast. But the mark of the beast at its very heart is exalting the human above the divine. It's placing man's word above God's word. It results in replacing the commandments of God with human decrees. It leads to giving glory to man rather than glory to God. So anytime we exalt the human above the divine, that's the beast principle. The beast principle and why the Sabbath is so relevant in that, why the Sabbath is so significant in that, is because the Sabbath is a sign of the Creator God. It's a sign of the one that created us, the one that died for us, and the one that's coming again for us. So Satan has attempted to distort the Sabbath, and the change of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday is the epitome of this exaltation of the human above the divine. But any time pride fills our hearts over human achievements, Anytime we become egotistically proud of what we can do, that is the beast principle in our hearts. The epitome of that will be the ultimate exaltation of the human above the divine. Here, 
This is an amazing statement. The exceeding great and precious promises given us in the Holy Scripture have been lost sight of to a great extent, Ellen White says. Just as the enemy of all righteousness designed that they should be, he has cast his own dark shadow between us and our God that we may not see the true character of God. The Lord has proclaimed himself to be merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Several have written to me inquiring the message, if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I've answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Why? Why? Because God's last day message describes a group of grace-filled end-time believers who are totally sold out and committed to Christ, who the quality of Christ's faith lives in their hearts, flows out of their lives in witness for others. Saved by grace, their hearts are filled with the faith of Jesus. His faith motivates and changes them. It inspires and empowers them. It frees them from the guilt of the past, delivers them from the bondage of sin in the present, and fills their hearts with hope for the future. George Frederick Henry was a great musician, and he lost his health. His right side was paralyzed. His money was gone. His creditors seized and threatened to imprison him. And Hendo was in a tremendous point of depression. Imagine it, this great musician. Health gone, paralyzed on one side, money spent, creditors seized him and they were going to imprison him. But he began to read the book of Revelation and he read three passages. Here's what they were. Revelation 11 verse 15. Kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 19, verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitudes as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God omnipotent reigns. Revelation chapter 17, verse 6, Christ is the King of kings, Christ is the Lord of lords. Can you imagine how Handel was so inspired he composed the Messiah in 21 days in the summer of 1741. And when he got to the Hallelujah Court, his assistant found him in tears saying, I did not think, I did think I saw heaven opened and saw the very face of God. When Handel wrote the Messiah, he says, I saw the very face of God. God was guiding me because one day Jesus will come and one day the whole universe will worship him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What is the essence of the three angels' message? Some time ago, a college newspaper ran a survey. And in that survey, college students were asked, define the word life. And, the, and the, the definition that won was this. Life is the penalty that we pay for the crime of being born. Life is the penalty we pay for the crime of being born. When Shakespeare put into the words of his character in Macbeth the de definition of life, he said, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The world that we live in is confused about what life is all about. And the message of the three angels gives us value and worth, points us beyond famine and flood, earthquake and war, trial and trauma to the kingdom of God where there'll be hope and joy forevermore. The message of the three angel and the message that Seventh-day Adventists have for the world is a message of incredible hope. It's a message that this generation has been called to share. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study the word together, to share the message of eternal, the eternal Christ and the message of the three angels with the world. Oh, my Father, bless in a special way as we continue our studies. May we rise to the destiny that you've called us. May we be faithful 
to our calling. We know that by your will we exist in this generation. It's no accident. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.